We uh, left off last week in chapter 17 of Matthew, and tonight we're stopping the series in Matthew, so volume 3 of our series in Matthew will be done tonight. Here's where we left off in chapter 17. I just want to make one point. You know, we like to sometimes go back and recap something. There's one point I wanted to make that we kind of almost could have missed as we go through this. When we were skimming over this verse that we've covered numerous times in other series about the faith to move mountains, there's a very interesting thing here, and we actually ended up talking about it afterwards, so I thought I'd bring it up into the discussion here. It's this sentence, because you have so little faith. So if the context, if you remember, the disciples have come to Jesus to ask him why it is that they can't heal this boy from the demon. And Jesus responded, because you have so little faith. And then he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, then you could do impossible things. You can move this mountain. Here's the interesting thing that came up in the discussion. Well, what does he mean you have so little faith? Because it seems like he's saying if you just had the faith of a mustard seed, so is he saying they have less than that in amount of faith? And actually, I went to look this up, and it's, if you look at the language very carefully, what Jesus is really saying is because you have no faith. The word that he uses actually implies faithlessness. You have nothing, not even the amount of a mustard seed. Because remember, in Jesus' parables, this seems to be the smallest symbol he uses, a mustard seed. So it must mean that they had nothing, not even that small amount. Here's the commentator that I like the best in understanding the sentence here that I've underlined. He says this, it's important to observe that it's not the amount of faith. And I want you to hear that. It's not the amount of faith which brings the impossible within reach, but the power of God, which is available even the smallest faith. You know, you could skip over that. that. That one sentence just seems so packed with meaning because a lot of times we have debated in here and others have debated, is it just that you don't have enough faith? What Jesus seems to be saying to the disciples is you have no faith because it takes just a little bit to give you access to the power of God. So it's not the amount that we're looking for, it's just do you have it? And it's have it in what? As we've said numerous times in other places, have it that God can do it, that it's his power that's at work. Now again, there's other qualifications and you have to read scripture as a whole, but I just want to point out that one thing that we ended up talking about afterwards and I thought it's a good enough point to bring into our discussion. So I want to leave it there. We know we talked about this verse a number of times. I don't want to get bogged down to it. We've got a lot to cover. Let's move forward and start chapter 18. Here's the beginning of chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Sets up a whole discussion. Seems like a benign question. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? On the one hand, you could say this is going to be kind of a strange question. Didn't Jesus just end his time talking just a couple of chapters ago in 16 about how you're going to deny yourself, pick up the cross, all these things that he's saying? seems a little strange that if he's preaching a gospel that involves denial of self as the primary component of how it is to follow Jesus, that their main concern here seems to be, but which of us would be the greatest? So a lot of times we see the sentence and we just kind of poke fun at the disciples like they still don't get it. But in fairness, I want to point out the other side. Maybe they're starting to struggle with Jesus' words. Maybe while they know that he's talking about denial, and they don't fully understand that yet, they've just seen that Jesus told Peter that you are the rock. He kind of elevates Peter a little bit. In the next chapter in the Transfiguration, he kind of selects three disciples and leaves the rest of them behind and takes them up on the mountain to see this glorious event. So maybe the disciples are starting to think among themselves, Maybe there is a pecking order in this kingdom. And they're not really talking so much about, again, the kingdom of heaven, meaning heaven later. They're just saying, in the kingdom of God, is there some sort of pecking order? Is there some sort of person who's greatest? Remember, even Jesus is going to use that same kind of hierarchy language elsewhere. So maybe it's a legitimate question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I wonder if I didn't put the rest of the text up there, what you would say. If we just started with that question and we just said, hey, let's just discuss that tonight. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What would our answers be? But we'll spare that and say, here's what Jesus did. He called a little child 
and had him stand among them. I want you to picture this right now. Jesus is about to make a physical parable, all right? He sees a child and he says, come here, stand over here. Matt, come here. Like, <laughs> I'm just kidding. You can stand right here. Like, he's like, he doesn't know. Is he serious or not? Like, oh no. He actually makes a child stand right in front of him. He calls him over and says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Is Jesus back to being the Riddler again? I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me. What does that mean? People are listening. It's the answer to an obvious question that they've asked. So what's the answer mean? What does it mean to become like a little child? Yeah. It's like the innocence of a child, the way they view life and like their fate. Children just believe. Like they don't need to know much. They just like full-heartedly believe in things. So give me some key words. Innocence. Innocence, faith, belief. Probably like loyalty too and adoration. Like children just love. Okay, Jeremy. I actually think it has nothing to do with innocence or belief. Uh, just it, he's setting up the type of relationship he expects them to be in. And so if you think of the relationship a child has to a parent, it's one that is what well, should be, right? Humility, obedience. It's not necessarily how much or how little faith they have or the fact because children themselves they're not innocent any more than than, than most adults are I mean, sure they are no. just okay. a simple yeah. but okay Dustin I don't know I think because the disciples they're, they're, they're saying who's the greatest who's the greatest who's better right it's kind of a prideful thing right <clears throat> to be humble it kind of lacks pride there's always exceptions but children in my opinion they don't have the pride that many do so I think that's the comparison in my opinion do children, are children humble? How many people work with children? Are they humble? Sometimes. And I, I think they do things without just knowing. It's, I, they have that innocence with them. But I also think the relationship thing, too, I think those are both two key things. Okay, coming back this way, Surly? When you're a child, you're an empty vessel. Okay. And you're sitting there and you're waiting for uh, people that are older and more experienced to fill you up with things. And I think that's what Jesus meant. Okay. Well, children, at least at that time, they didn't really have a status. They were kind of like very, they just ran in the streets. They didn't have like, this, you know, society, they didn't have much of anything. Okay, so the children didn't have status. Okay, Soren? It's not like today where we have like the children are our future kind of mentality. Like they weren't viewed with like a lot of honor or like happiness. Okay. Brittany? Yeah, just kind of bring that like, like they were kind of the least in society and didn't have any rights or anything. Take all of those comments and see what we can make out of them. Jesus is making this analogy to something very well known to people in the first century. So what he's really saying to them in some way is, yes, there are these characteristics of children. I think the ones that come really close though is he's trying to highlight humility, but children aren't really all that humble. But they are, there's one word that seems to kind of come out of this, is they are dependent. That was a very first century view. Jeremy's right, it is about the relationship. So is Surly about this idea that they have of how they are, well, they're empty, they're a blank slate, but they're also not just a blank slate like you can fill them up and write on them. They're a blank slate in the fact that they need parents to give them everything, especially little children. And that's what he's trying to do. Now, some of you who talked about status, that's right too. Because they are asking about who's the greatest. And he's saying, look at somebody who in your eyes in the first century think of as the least. So of course we know that Jesus elsewhere is going to say, if you want to be the greatest, then strive to be the least. I mean, he has that formula of how it's going to be. We have the Beatitudes that talk about the poor in spirit and the meek and all those kinds of attitudes. But it really here is one where he's saying, like this child who is fully dependent on the father or their parents, that's the way that you should be, not striving for position, but wholly dependent on God. Look at this thing he does here. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. That in my name is linked to the kingdom of heaven. He's again identifying himself as he will more and more throughout the book of Matthew. That he and God, he and the Father are the same. He keeps repeatedly making this in subtle ways. Now, I want to make a point here because you're going to think if we keep reading this that he's just going to talk about little ones. You see these words that all we're going to do is talk about children. Let me read this and we'll explain how it differs. But if anyone causes any one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. What is he talking about there? Who are the little ones? Was he talking about children? This is where a lot of people get tripped up. And they keep reading the rest of the chapter about children. What was Jesus doing with the child? Jeremy. If the child is just standing as an analogy for how we're supposed to be, then I suppose that little ones would refer to all people. It wouldn't just be children, it would be anybody. I mean, you, you could be a stumbling block to any person. One of these little ones who believe in me. Who is that equal? Us, disciples, young people in Christ, or people who believe in Christ. Yes, of course, probably the more vulnerable of us, but it begins to mean those who believe wholeheartedly and dependently upon Christ. This is a really important transition that Matthew makes that a lot of people miss. And the implication of missing this is when Matthew brings up little ones again in Matthew 25, or you may have heard it as this word, the least of these, my brothers. A lot of people have mistaken those to either be children or other things, and we have to wrestle with, Matthew uses a specific word, these little ones, and Jesus has made an analogy that these are the people who are dependent on me. Disciples, believers, people who are part of my kingdom, who are going to be great in my kingdom. So this word here, if anyone causes any one of these to stumble, is not just talking about children, although I would think that we would probably be the most jealously guarded over children who cause them to stumble, but this is really talking about any of us. It would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. How do we cause others to stumble? That's something we should reflect on tonight. How is it that we cause others to stumble in their faith? How do we cause others to stumble into sin? Because I think we're all complicit in that. Woe to the world because of such things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. Jesus is a realist. A lot of us use this excuse all the time. Well, but I don't think Jesus expected that we would just stop sinning. Right, he says that. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. They will be there. There will be sin. But that doesn't take away the responsibility to those of us through whom sin comes, especially when it hurts and comes upon other people. It's a stern warning. Another stern warning, and you've probably seen this one before. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and then be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell. Where have we seen this before? Yeah, it comes in the Sermon on the Mount, same book. It's right here. It's almost taken the same teaching all over again from Matthew chapter 5. When he was talking about lust, he says that if you're right, I cause you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away, same thing. Now he's expanding it to just sin in general. He's not dealing with one specific sin. He's talking about sin. What did we say about it back then? Are we supposed to gouge out our eye? Jesus is saying probably better that you enter that way. So what is Jesus adding here? First, he's expanding it to all sin. And second, he's adding more information about where this place might be. He uses the word eternal fire and fire of hell in the same sentence. So what do you think? Is he making a case that we're all just going to burn for doing that? Yeah, you don't like that, I know. 
Well, no, I'm just going to say, I don't know if, if the first part of that, the part of you, the, the whole part talks about gouging out your eye, if we're, most of us would say that's probably, he's using hyperbole, then how could you say the second part is literal? Why wouldn't it also be hyperbole? The fires of hell part. Exactly. I'm, I'm not going to say, I'm just saying that, it, like, it can't be that the first part is hyperbole, but the second part's real. Well, then that's just art. There's, there's, no reason to, there's no reason to argue one or the other. That is true. I thought you might say that. So I went looking into what, how to harmonize those two. I actually anticipated that you would say that, because I know your hell is very cold. Or at least it's just boring, but it's never fire. You know, it's never hot there. Because every time we get to any verse where Jesus says fire is like, yeah, he's just exaggerating, right? But, you know, he says fire a lot. It makes me uncomfortable. I went, went through the Bible once trying to prove that that was just a made-up notion, and I just kept encountering the word fire. I was like, ah, oh, this is tough. Tough to put out the fire. So I thought you might ask that. So I actually tried to look and see if there's any way to harmonize the two, and the only way I can come up with is just a small observation. It's not going to solve the problem. The observation is he could have said it in Matthew 5, and he didn't. He made the same hyperbole, but he admitted that part. He just referred to it as hell. This other one, he seems to emphasize it and state it more clearly. That's the only thing I can offer, is that if he was going to make the hyperbole here, he would have made it here as well. And it just seems like that concept keeps coming up over and over with him. But you're right, it might be hyperbole. Maybe hell is not really a place of fire. Maybe he just said that 20 or 30 times and didn't really mean it. So anyway, Philip? Um, I don't think it's off base to assume he could use hyperbole or analogy or metaphors or something to refer to something that's actually true. Or you could just say that the, 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 the hell component or the eternal fire component is just there to emphasize the point, the, the, the spiritual point he's trying to make about sin. Not that those things actually exist or not that you would actually engage in that activity. Okay, I think the thing I would add, just to throw it out there, is we do have to struggle with that issue at some point. We haven't really adequately done it here in this group, but that is something that keeps coming up as a theme in Scripture that we should just come back to some days. What is the characteristic of hell, and why is it referred to in this way? But I want to look at the main point of all this. On the whole, though, even if it is hyperbole, what Jesus is really getting at is a self-examination that we need to be doing to find out where it is that we could fit this description. I mean, when he woes somebody, he is giving a strong warning to people that maybe we have to get beyond the idea that we can just do whatever we want and we're okay. He's actually making a strong statement about the consequences that come to people who cause others to sin and to stumble, and also the way that sin comes upon us too, and how little we struggle with it. And that's the main point, no matter how you think he makes it. Whether he literally means to gouge out your eye, and I think we've said before that that's probably going too far. But to just say, ah, he's just exaggerating, like this is just an exaggeration, I don't need to pay attention to it as much, he's trying to emphasize a point, is probably taking it too lightly. We need to be somewhere in between, where we're kind of a little stressed out. Finding ourselves in a place of sin should never be comfortable though we have grace and mercy. It should be something that remains disturbing. And he's saying it should disturb us to the point where we should even consider cutting out that which causes us to sin, even if it's one of our own organs. Okay? Yeah, Brian. I don't understand why the verse before he says that you need to become like a child, almost like no worries, or just kind of in that confident relationship, even if it's a relationship with the child and the father. But then... You know, your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And then you're saying that we want to have this worry about this fire, but then before you were saying to kind of almost not really worry. That's what I want to be very careful of, is we've taken the child analogy too far. We've actually given it our own color in a modern context. That's, and that's why I'm trying to say we should be very careful to understand what it means. Like, for example, some people have taken childlike faith to mean like, you know, like an innocent faith. Like a, you know, like, hey, I don't care faith, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying a dependent on me faith. So we have to be very careful. Like even when we say childlike faith, people have used that as an excuse not to get educated, right? Not to understand things, not to wrestle with things. Just go, hey, accept it like a little child does. Most children go, why, 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 why? Like they don't accept anything the first time you tell them, right? 
So even the analogy in a 21st century context makes no sense, right? But people have twisted it into our understanding. We have to go back to the first century and understand what he meant when he pulled out that child. And it means that dependence, that relationship of utter, like, yes, I'm dependent on you. And I'm least, but you will make me into what I am, right? That kind of thing. So now if you take the analogy, it kind of ends in verse 5. And starting in verse 6, now he's talking about all believers. We still need to be like that, but like what is the most thing we have to be careful of? Like dependent. And that's why if you read it that way, when you get down further into the same connected verses, you start to go, I don't understand how they would be connected. Like if he's saying, don't worry, like be like a child, then why should we worry about sin? That's not what he's saying about the child. And the first warning is to us when we cause other believers to stumble. The next is to examine our own life, which harkens back to what he already said in the Sermon on the Mount. We need to always take sin very seriously. Because God does. It's easy for us to get lulled in a place where we're not taking it seriously. Okay? Let's move on a little bit. He continues, see that you do not look down on one of these little ones. Again, little ones being who? These believers. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Let's just stop there. What does that mean? For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Do we have guardian angels? That's what it says, right? Isn't the theology of angels that we have as Christians taken from touch by an angel? Isn't that where like, our theology on angels come from? You know, I was going to skip this and just keep going into the main point where he's going to talk about these lost sheep. But we've got to stop here for just a minute because we have a number of people who don't know much about angels, and we have a lot of weird theology in the church about angels, and here Jesus is talking about angels. Jill. I'm not sure about the angels aspect of it, but I do think this is talking about access. Like, they're not shunned in heaven because you think they're least here. They've always got access to God. So, I don't know, maybe he's speaking of the future of when everyone's in heaven and their angels are themselves. All right, let's, let's get that straight. When we go to heaven, do we turn into angels? No. no, we're separate, right? Separate creation. So here he's saying, you're right, Jill, he's talking about access, that the angels have access to the Father. That's clear from always see the face of my Father. But then to connect us to it, they have to have access to the angels. That's what doesn't make sense. Right. No, no, I agree. It says that the angel has access to the Father. The question is, why do they have their angels? Who are their angels? Yeah. Point on this is correct, but you could think of it like if it's these little ones, like a collective body of believers, that if there's like demons and angels and believers would be on the good side, then like they would be associated with angels. So maybe it could be like their angels in the sense that like if you're not a follower, maybe you wouldn't have like angels on your side. Okay. Go ahead, Jerry. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll say the controversial thing here and say that it's not talking about guardian angels or anything at all. That if you look at the, the next two parts that you put up there where he's talking about how a shepherd would go and search for the one, right? Then, then maybe the point that is being made here is that the father doesn't forget that if you were to forget, or if you were to look down, or if you, if you were to ignore these little ones, that it's not even so much the importance of the angels reminding God, but it's the idea that God, God the Father, will rejoice and go after that one who you've neglected or you've looked down on. Maybe Jesus is making a larger point here about our importance to the Father. I mean, just to push back a little bit on that, like, I think I agree with you, Jeremy, that that's, I might say that's probably the point, but even if that's the point he was trying to go off of, I think the idea of angels is still there, and he uses that to make his point. And so we can't just say, well, that's the point he's trying to make, so we can ignore that part and say, we don't, like, the angels aren't important to us. Like, he, he addresses it in a different way that's in elsewhere in Scripture, and so we have to say, okay, well, why did he choose to do it that way? Because that has importance that he chose to do it that way. And let me answer that, because I think Philip's on to something. Like, even though his ultimate point is something else, we all agree about that. Yeah. This is a transitional statement. He's on his way somewhere, but he chose 
a particular way of saying it. So we have to at least ask, why would you mention angels? So let me answer it, and then I'll let you go. Let me, let me go forward a little bit. If we just look at this verse by itself, here's what he's doing here. He's actually making a reference back to Psalm 91 in some way. The idea that, that angels were there has been something that's in the Old Testament, and we also see it in Matthew, the same verse. All right, so the question that's asked is, does this verse imply that we have guardian angels? The answer is, well, in Psalm 91, it says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. If you remember reading Matthew, you might remember that very same verse. Do you remember who used that verse in the book of Matthew? Satan did. He tempts Christ with the same thing. So what I'm trying to point out is first, the Old Testament already had this concept loosely floating around and found in at least one verse that God does command angels to guard people. All right? Satan, importantly in the book of Matthew, uses the very same verse when he's trying to tempt Jesus saying, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written and he cites Psalm 91 again. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. One way just to look at this is, yeah, there's kind of this concept floating around. But obviously that's not the point he's trying to make. If you go back to the whole thing, we can also see this verse I put up here. If you look at Hebrews chapter 1, it's one of the longest descriptions we have of the role of angels because the writer of Hebrews is trying to write about Jesus being greater than all the angels. And he does make this one statement at the end of chapter 1. He says in verse 14, are not the angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? Read that again. You might miss that. Aren't angels spirits that are sent to minister those who inherit salvation? So if angels have a ministering role, at least according to the writer of Hebrews, to those who are inheriting salvation, then it seems like there is some sort of angel that seems to intercede and have access to the Father on our behalf. Now, does that mean everybody gets one? I don't know. Does that mean that all those verses I just throw up establish that? I really don't know. That's scant evidence, I'll be honest. Taken from a couple of verses here and there throughout the entire Bible to establish that there might be an angel that is pleading our case before the Lord, as this would say, or is somehow serving and ministering or protecting on our behalf. And if you take that theology, like, then you end up with, well, what about all the people who it doesn't work for them? Or where was the guardian angel when they got into a car accident, right? That's our next series on suffering and evil. We're not going there tonight. But to skip over this weird statement, because Philip's right, like, Jesus kind of went out of his way to use this. We should at least understand what it means so that we don't just skip right over it or believe something that isn't really in the text. All right, Jeremy, you want to come back? I'm not saying to ignore or skip over it. I'm saying that I don't think we should develop some full-fledged theology of angels from it. And I'm only suggesting that perhaps Jesus is tapping into a cultural consciousness of his time, you know, where the people he's talking to, they have some concept in their mind about angels, clearly. I'm just saying I wouldn't go down the path of saying, well, clearly this is guarding angels doing this or that. There, there need to be a lot more to, to do that, that's all. Okay, Megan. Um, I don't know if I dismiss this, but we're not we're not saying that angels are necessarily like serving an intermediary role, right? So I feel like that got tossed around a little bit, and like I don't see that from there. And so I wasn't sure if I should see that or if you just didn't want to say that. The the phrase "their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father" implies that there are angels who have access to the Father who are there to remind him of the person. Because that's the whole meaning of the whole thing put together. Don't look down on these people because their angels always see the face of my father. They're always before him. It's almost like they have value because their angels somehow have access to the father. I know. It, it, we can't go too far like to say like somehow they're walking in going, Lord, Lord, Megan's in trouble. Like we got to get down there right away. Like I don't know that you can take it that far. But those other verses come they start to kind of build this strange concept, and Scripture doesn't tell us too much about the role of angels and how it works. So we're left to kind of wonder. Jill. Isn't there um, 
Yeah, I really don't know. But I don't think anybody's, anything in this verse or any of the verses otherwise could say that there's a one-to-one -one ratio, right? The only question is, do they have any representative capacity or not? And why do some people who look at this say, yes, there's some evidence with this and other verses that it does? Jeremy, last comment before we get over this. Um, I think it's interesting that Megan has an uh, issue with the word intercession. And I, I think it might be a uniquely Protestant evangelical concern. <laughs> but I don't think it's an issue of intercession on behalf of salvation. That's not what we're talking about. If there's any kind of intercession, though, we, we might talk about intercession, or people doing that through prayer, or, or, or saints, or angels. I mean, again, I wouldn't want to knock that idea. I mean, if, if it's true that this is talking about events that occur that angels remind, um, or that, that some kind of intercessor intercession takes place, that's interesting to think about whether or not there's other places in Scripture where that occurs, or whether during this time they practice that, like as a, a, a popularly, if, if the culture did that. Okay. Look, you can take it a number of ways. Do these angels contend for you? Do they guard for you? Do they plead your case in front of the Father? Do they just remind him of you? I don't know. But all those meanings come out of this. I mean, they could be possible interpretations. And we don't have a definitive answer. Because we see that angels have access to the throne room of God. We know that. We know that if you look at the book of Job and you take that for what it is, that in the book of Job, even Satan comes before the throne room and asks something of the Lord. So... There's a lot going on in the spiritual realm we don't understand. And we've even done a series on spiritual warfare and what's going on in the background there. Check that out. But I just didn't want to skip over something and just toss this out because this is one of those things that if you're reading it carefully, you should trip hard over this and go, what was that? But here's the important part that he's leading into. It is a transitional statement. Don't disdain these people. Don't look down on them. Don't harm them are all in meanings out of the don't look down on them. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wanders off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. There's that little ones again. Is he just talking about a lost child here? No. Again, little ones has become the equation for those who trust and depend on God, the believers. He's not willing that anyone would wander off. That's how much he values the one. And we are talking about believers here. If you look at the parable of lost sheep in Luke, that's a different parable. It's talking about somebody who doesn't know God. This one is talking about someone who does. So if somebody wanders off, he does his best to go find that one and rejoices over that one. And that's a very transitional statement before he says this. Now he starts to talk about how it is we are to treat one another when we sin against one another. Do you see how this whole thing is building? We're talking about, first, identifying the little ones. Second, don't cause the little ones to sin or to stumble. Be very careful about that. Think about it seriously. You yourself should look at sin very seriously. God takes it very seriously. Seriously enough that he'll go out and look for the one who is wandering off and be so happy when he finds that one. Now, this is how you should do it. Here is your parable of, of the one sheep, but now we're going to talk about it in the context of church discipline. If your brother sins against you, go show him his fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Jesus is now setting up the way in which we're supposed to deal with discipline of one another and how to deal with sin within the church between us when something happens. Notice this is the opposite of what we do. What happens when our brother sins against us? <laughs> Seems like everybody else finds out before they do, right? Because we tell two friends or three friends, and we will run it by a bunch of people, and pretty soon like the whole community knows, except the person we actually have the issue with. This is something that we have to root out of our communities, including this one. If your brother sins against you, you go to that person first just between the two of you. 
If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he'll not listen, notice you still don't get to tell everybody. Take one or two others along. Not take two others aside and go, hey, I went to so-and-so and I told them this thing and guess what they said? No, no, no. You take one or two others along and go to that person again so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That section about everything established by two or three witnesses, Old Testament standard of the law. Go to that person. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Not spread gossip through the church, but tell it to the church so that the church can talk to him. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. There's a hierarchy. Matthew 18 sets up something for us that's very important. Why do we go through all this trouble? Is it just to avoid gossip? No. Although that is one of the things that he's doing here. It's because one sheep, one believer who's wandered off into sin is so important to the Father that he himself would go after that person and we're left in that place to do that. We're supposed to go after that person. If one of us has wandered into a place of sin, start there. Now notice this one says, against you. It is probably meant so that we don't meddle and just some of us become like self-appointed sin meters and go check out whenever somebody's in sin, just walk up to somebody you don't go and go, hey, you're blowing it. It seems to imply that if your brother sins against you, so this is personal first. Maybe you will become one of the two or three that go later. Maybe you're part of the church, but it starts with sins that are going on with us because that's where it should start anyway. That's where the healing should take place. That's where the forgiveness should take place. But most importantly, that's where the conversation takes place that brings that person back into the body. Seems easy, at least to understand. There's nothing to debate in this passage. (laughs) This is just really difficult to apply. This is one where we never do this. We flip it around. We start at the bottom and work our way so that the last thing we do is go to the person. And that we cannot do. Yes? Which is the, with the last line, treat him as you would pay in our tax collector. How do you interpret that in modern day? It's a very good question. Let's first interpret it the way Jesus would in his day. Because a lot of times we've read this line treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector as an excuse or as a justification to excommunicate somebody or to push them out of the fellowship completely. And in a way, that is what is being implied here. Because, of course, first century Jews would not fellowship with a pagan or a tax collector, right? Right, most first century Jews, except one named Jesus. So in a way... While there is, if he refuses to listen to you and refuses to listen to the church and all the witnesses, then yes, there must be some sort of separation, probably for the purpose that that separation might bring them to their senses. Okay? But let's be clear, that doesn't mean that you just go, you're dead to me. Because Jesus himself contended for pagans and tax collectors and spent time among them and dined with them, even in a scandalous way according to the norm of his time. So I don't think that gives us the justification to treat them like you're dead to me, you're out of here. I think we still extend love and show all those things that Jesus would show, but at the same time making clear that we still have an issue with what's happened. And it's not just my issue now. Now it's the issue of the entire fellowship. You know what's hard about this in our modern day? Not only do we not go to one another, you know what's hard about this? This is one of the things that really should break our hearts about how many churches have broken apart. Like today, if you do this, you get all the way to the end and you tell a person, you know what, you've refused to listen to the person, to the witnesses, even to the whole church, you're refusing to give in, what do they do? They just go to another church. There's no consequence. The churches don't know each other. And then the other church, they're just happy to gain a new member. They're psyched. Their church is growing. And this happened in a very real situation in our church where somebody was sinning 
And we went to that person and we talked to them. And then he said, no, I want more witnesses. And more witnesses sat down with them. And they came to the same conclusion. He said, no, I want the whole elders to do that. The whole elders sat down and said the same thing. Pretty soon there could have been a room of like 20 people sitting there saying, this needs to change in your life. He said, nope. He just left the church, went to another one where he became the worship leader. There's no accountability in our churches anymore. And tonight he's back. Ryan, welcome back. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for coming in. It's good to see you. Jeremy. I don't see how, you said earlier how it was kind of building up from the previous passage of this. I don't actually see any connection. And what's interesting is that in this translation, um, it, it's clearly talking about church, which is bizarre because Jesus is before church. I don't want to say Jesus didn't say it, but it seems definitely weird that you've got Jesus in a discussion about angels and sheep and shepherds, and then now let's talk about church structure or church politics, and then it, and then it goes on. So that, that strikes me as peculiar. But the other thing is, the issue of the sin might be a matter of perspective, which is interesting. In other words, whether or not that person is actually committing a sin would depend on a lot of things. And place, but I could see uh, the worst offense of someone being accused. Well, you're clearly sinning. It's like, no, I'm not doing anything wrong at all. Well, that's actually why the next verses are there. Actually, let me answer the part about this being connected. First, you're right, this is only the second time Jesus is going to use the word church, probably in the whole book of Matthew. So Matthew doesn't even use the word very much, and if it's attributed to Jesus correctly, it's the second time it appears. You know that Matthew's probably arranged some of the text here, that it doesn't necessarily have to be chronological, especially because this is his fourth teaching, and he's arranging material together. So I disagree slightly in the fact that they're not connected because it seems that he is spending all of chapter 18 talking about the ways we deal with one another. And going after the brother is the sheep that he's talking about. I mean, he's making a connection between that sheep that you're going to go after, that God is saying he would be very happy to go after. Here's the sheep. He's this guy. Now, here's how you do it practically. So you're right. I don't know that Jesus said this in one long teaching where he just kept going and going and going and going. It seems like Matthew's arranged it, but the intent is to link those concepts together. It's just interesting that it switches to church here. It comes out of the more like personal... This, this concept of church. Okay, it's true. The thing that gives me comfort that it's okay is what you just said. He goes on to the next part right here where he repeats what he has earlier said to Peter at the inauguration of Peter being the rock on which he's going to build the church. He says here, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's exactly what he said to Peter. He made that same statement. To Peter, just two chapters ago, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now he's saying it to all the disciples. That you, I tell you, is a plural you. I tell you, all the disciples here, that you have this power. Okay, great. So first Peter had it, now they have it. What does this power mean? We talked about it briefly in chapter 16. We'll talk about it again here. It is not just the power to interpret things. It's not Peter at the keys to the kingdom at the gate. This is him saying, hey, if you're going to have these issues in the church and the church has to decide whether this person is repentant or not, whether they should be treated like a pagan or a tax collector or not, that might stress you out. Especially what Jeremy just raises, maybe there'll be a false accusation. Like, how do you know for sure? And Jesus is giving assurance to them saying, I'm telling you. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. The decisions that you make are going to be binding. And again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Jesus is giving assurance to the disciples as they start to make these decisions that I'm there with you. And if you make a decision, it's going to be okay. In fact, there's this weird text here. The grammar is so bizarre, it actually says, if you read it literally, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. It's very awkward grammar. Because a lot of Christians have said, oh, so I make a decision and heaven is bound by my decision? The, the actual grammar doesn't say it that way. It actually implies the decision you come to has already been made in heaven. And maybe somehow you just discerned it. A lot of debate has happened over why is the grammar so weird here? 
But the important thing about the grammar, it's not for us to understand, is it like we binding heaven or is it heaven binding us? It's that Jesus is trying to say, don't stress out. I'm with you when you make these decisions. I'm with you and I stand with you when you gather in my name. And whatever you decide is the way that it should probably be. Yeah. But it's just saying like that the Lord will stand by the decision that the church made, but not to be translated to salvation like, oh, you excommunicated them from the church, so when it comes to that person coming before the Lord, they're excommunicated from salvation. Like That can't be what it's obviously... It's not about salvation. This is about church discipline and fellowship. Just that the church will not be held accountable negatively for if they went through all these steps and came to a decision, then the Lord's going to honor it as an honorable decision. Yeah, he's saying, I'm there with you, and that decision is going to be the way it's going to be. Again, remember how Jesus keeps alluding to himself as God? Look at it again. I tell you that if you ask and agree on anything you ask for, it will be done by my Father. And then in the next parallel phrase, he says, where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Like he's identifying himself with the Father directly again. Same function. All right, Jeremy. This really brings up the question of apostolic authority because here I think Jesus is really giving a, he's very clearly setting up a structure with the disciples and Peter. Like what does this mean then in terms of the authority in the church. So, you know, in the Roman Catholic tradition, we have the Pope and the Cardinals and the Bishops. And, and there's the idea there quite strongly, right, that they're part of this apostolic, and so it's their orthodoxy as well. And the one place where it's not present is in the Protestant church. Like, it's such a different idea than what we're accustomed to in, in, our, in our community, and we kind of broke away from that. And I, and I don't want to say that that was right or wrong, but who would be the arbiter, in, in other words, who would be the person binding things in heaven on earth? That even in the first century, forget today, but after the church is split into a splinters and pieces, I think it continues into those who have authority in the church, and you might, we might debate who that is, but if this was limited only to the apostles, we would have a church that had no authority in it, right? Today, to actually call somebody out, like it would be anarchy. That while one model, like following a papal kind of edict model, might be too far one way, Maybe our view where today everybody hears directly from God, does whatever they feel like doing, and everybody's subject to their own compass and has to sit under nobody else's authority because who are you to tell me kind of thing that we've gone completely the other side. And there has to be this type of middle ground. And of course, if you start reading the, the Pauline epistles, especially like Timothy and those, he starts to set up offices in the church and how it should be administered, and we shouldn't ignore those. We often do. We have self-appointed people and self-appointed authorities and Maybe we need to get around that because then who would administer this? That's fair to ask. I can also tell you when you said, what does this mean? I could tell you that we have to be careful of what it doesn't mean because we've gone across it, that people tend to just circle these last two verses on the screen and use them as a formula for everything. We've already talked about that in our series on prayer. This does not mean that whatever you agree on with your best friend means that God's got to do it for you. That's not even what it's talking about. It's not talking about prayer requests here. It's not talking about miracles for healing and all that stuff. It's talking about discipline and choosing who is in the church and who is not in the church or who is going to be held accountable and who is not because that's what he's talking about when he gives them this authority. This other one here, how many plates in the Christian bookstore have this quote on it? For where two or three come together in my name, I'm there with them, right? I mean, I hear that all the time. Like People just use the first part like it's shorthand. Like where they're going to walk away, where two or more are gathered. You know, like, what does that mean exactly? Does it mean that if you're by yourself, God is not there? God is omnipresent. The Spirit lives in us. He dwells us. He's everywhere. <laughs> He's not waiting for two of us to get together, like wonder twin powers activate, like putting our little rings together, and then God can somehow show up. That's not what that verse means. Of course when two or three gather in his name for his purposes to be the church together, then he is probably, I don't know, say more present. He has a heightened presence. I don't even know how to put it. I don't know how you would do that. If he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. But it's still in the context of, don't worry, I'm with you. Even as you make these difficult decisions and you go through these difficult things and you exercise your authority as the church. So that's what those things come together. So let's leave it there tonight.
What do we take out of all of this that's practical for us? Like even if we don't understand where to fit guardian angels or whatever that whole thing about angels has to do, where do we take this? The practical things we should not miss here tonight are there are places in our life, mine too, where we don't take sin seriously enough. Either in the way that we might encourage or not discourage sin among others around us, in places where we get all too comfortable with our own sin, where we excuse it to the point where it's just benign. We live with it. We don't fight with it. We don't address it. And also in the places that we see tonight that God cares so much about the believers in our midst. And I heard Soren's prayer pretty loud and clear at the end of worship tonight just about why it is we do what we do in here, why it is that we take these passages and rip them to shreds. It's because even in the ways that we interpret Scripture, sometimes it causes people to stumble and run away or to have their real-life encounter just have nothing to do with what they're reading and think this can't be real. Or the things that we say or the things that we believe and the way that we throw them on other people or we heap them as burdens, that's not what Jesus said his burden was like. So those are the kinds of things that we do in here. I want to be careful of that. And when we do see somebody in our midst, not just who's in sin, but who's just struggling and falling away, who is that one person maybe out of the hundred that we would be brave enough, and it does take bravery for us to surround that person and help them back into the fold of a hundred. It's hard to do because it's not cool. In our side, it's easier to kind of like stay away from the really difficult and deep discussions. But I bet you there are people in this room that are struggling with where they're at with God right now. And we need to be brave enough and loving enough and caring enough as the Father would be to find out who is that person and surround them and bring them back. Not because of just sin issues, but just because we love them and their future and what they can be as part of the kingdom. So let's just think about that tonight. Let's close. Lord, we lay before you these words tonight. Whatever it is that we have accomplished and struggling through them, now, Lord, let them take root in our hearts. Let us remember your deep concern for people. Let us remember your deep concern for those who become dependent solely on you. Let us remember the graveness of the warnings that you give for those of us who cause them to stumble. But Lord, in our own life, Lord, we just lay before you right now. Just, just, I just want to take a moment just to let, let that sink in. The places, Lord, that we ourselves have to examine our own hearts. Lord, in the rush of our lives, we just... There's just people in our midst that are falling by the wayside and we just don't even notice. Sometimes we don't care. Lord, every person is valuable to you. So Lord, keep our eyes open, keep our hearts open to love those around us, but in a way that would be courageous enough even to deal with people where they're struggling, even to go into places, Lord, where there's issues of sin that, would, that could be reconciled if it were just for our following your words. Lord, let us be a people who love so deeply that we would just shed our own pride, shed our own fears, and just approach people because we're ultimately winning them back to you, Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen.